Ephesians chapter 3. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, surely you've heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is, the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I've already written briefly. In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. Well, good morning, everybody. I, uh, just before coming to the Bible reading, I was uh, upstairs in the little quiet room in Ronsley, and uh, a brother came into that quiet room, and he saw me making a few scribbles, a uh, few adjustments to my script. And he said, uh, do you remember that scene from Blackadder? Black I grew up with Blackadder. I don't know if you know that comedy program. And in Blackadder, um, Baldrick, who's one of my favorite characters, Baldrick had written a book. And he took it to Blackadder and he said, um, have a look at this book. What do you think of it? And uh, Blackadder read it, and then he said, uh, he said I'd, I'd make only just one small change. And Baldrick said, what would you change? And he said, the words. <laughs> so that was an encouragement as I was changing my script for today. 
Please have your Bibles open at uh, Ephesians 3 as we come to our fourth session now of this glorious letter. I remember standing in the Colosseum in Rome. The Colosseum is still in magnificent condition 2,000 years after its construction. And as you stand on the terraces of this enormous stadium, you can look down on the underground tunnels exposed. And these tunnels used to house the wild animals, lions and cheetahs and so on. And it was on the sands of the Colosseum that some of the first Christians showed their ultimate commitment to Jesus Christ. Perhaps we can imagine them this morning standing in the cells of the arena, peering through the bars at 60,000 Romans baying for blood. The early church father Tertullian said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And it was in the Colosseum that the first Christians were willing to fall like a seed into the ground. There was no room for shallow faith in the Colosseum. This was a place for pounding hearts and anxious prayers and a faith that conquered death. As regular believers waited for the cell doors to open and the animals to be released. And it's difficult as a Christian today to visit the Colosseum and hear the stories and not be profoundly challenged. These first Christians were no, not some breed of super saint. They were ordinary men and women with an extraordinary devotion to the Lord. And not even all the horrors of the Roman Empire could prevent them from displaying their love for Christ. Jesus meant more to them than life itself. Now, modern-day Britain seems a far cry from ancient Rome, and the kind of opposition that we receive today for being Christians is, is different from those that the first believers experienced. And yet the faith of those men and women 2,000 years ago, their faith to pursue Christ, comes to me today with as much passion as ever and makes me ask, how committed am I to this gospel? And the Holy Spirit wants to take us this morning to another scene of ancient persecution so that we can be inspired today as we live our lives for the gospel Paul reminds us, if you look at the first verse of Ephesians chapter 3, Paul reminds us that he is in prison. Verse 1, for this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. Notice Paul doesn't call himself a prisoner of Rome. He calls himself the prisoner of Christ Jesus. He sees his time in prison as an expression of his commitment to Christ and to the gospel. He sees his time in prison not as a defeat, but as a sign of the triumph of the gospel. Paul's imprisonment makes the wonder of the gospel shine out all the more, just as it shone out from those Colosseum saints whose martyrdoms declare the excellencies of the gospel down through the centuries to our hearts today. The gospel is on full display in Paul's prison cell. And in our passage this morning, Paul explains to us why he is in prison. 
He is in prison because the gospel means more to him than life itself. So what is it about this gospel that captivated Paul and these first Christians so much that they were willing to die for it? Ask yourself this morning, why should I be captivated by this gospel in a very different culture and very different circumstances? This passage gives us three reasons why the gospel should captivate us today just as much as it captivated those men and women who gave their lives for it so many centuries ago. Firstly, Paul says, we should be captivated by the gospel because it is God's mystery revealed to us. It's God's mystery revealed to us. That's verses 1 to 6 of the passage. The gospel is a mystery. The word mystery is used three times in this passage. Verse 2 says, Surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is, the mystery made known to me by revelation. Then verse 4 again, You will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. And verse 6 again, This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel. So three times in six verses, Paul uses the word mystery to describe the gospel that he has been commissioned to deliver. And this word mystery is used seven times in all in the book of Ephesians. You might remember we caught it in chapter 1 about the mystery of the gospel. It's used in Ephesians more than in any other book of the Bible. So in what sense is the gospel a mystery? Well, up to this point of Ephesians, Paul has been explaining to us God's plans for the church. Ephesians 1 and 2 paint this glorious panoramic picture before the world began, before a star was flung into space, God planned to send his son to die, not just for individuals, though we are individually adopted as sons into the family, but also for the church, men and women from every nation on earth whom God has brought into loving relationship with himself through the cross of Jesus Christ. People previously hostile to each other and totally ignorant of God, without hope and without God in the world. And God planned to reconcile them to each other through the blood of Christ into this wonderful worldwide multi-ethnic community called church. And verse 6 here summarizes this plan. Paul says, this mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Jesus Christ. So it was always God's plan to bring the Gentile nations into God's saving promises that began with Israel. Always God's plan to make us children of Abraham through faith in Jesus Christ. But God's plan was a secret. It was a mystery that was hidden for centuries of human history. No one knew about it. A friend of mine is a, a season ticket holder at St. James's Park in Newcastle. And he told me that for half a season, from August to December, there were two empty seats next to his at Newcastle home games, which is very surprising because the Geordies love their football. 
And then on Boxing Day, a father and, her, and son suddenly showed up in these two seats. And it turns out that the wife had bought her husband and her son season tickets months earlier, but she wanted to keep them as a surprise until Christmas, <laughs> not realizing that they had already missed half the season. Now, some secrets really shouldn't be kept. You wouldn't know whether to hug a wife like that or strangle her, but anyway. But Paul tells us here that God's plan of salvation was a secret for centuries, for generations. It was a mystery. So as God was building the nation of Israel, the prophets had some shadowy grasp that God's plan would stretch to the whole earth in some way. We heard it from Richard last night in his excellent message, Psalm 67 verse 2, all the ends of the earth will turn to the Lord, all the families of the nations will worship before you. And then, of course, Isaiah keeps talking about distant islands coming to know the servant of the Lord. And the original promise that set the whole story of salvation underway is the promise to Abraham that through Abraham, all the nations of the earth would be blessed, Genesis 12, verse 3. So it was all there in the Old Testament, but no one fully grasped, had any idea how that would happen. They couldn't dream of Jew and Gentile, such different cultures with such different backgrounds, uniting in a new human race called the church. It was a mystery. And then, of course, Jesus is born, but he's born in a most surprising way. He's born into a peasant Jewish family in the little town of Bethlehem. And he's brought up in the north, the despised north, in the, in the tiny little town of Nazareth. Can anything good come from Nazareth? Population about 120 in Jesus' day. That's where the Son of God was raised. No one could have guessed that this Jesus of Nazareth would be the head of a new human race. And as Jesus is sentenced to death by Roman authority, stripped and beaten like a common criminal, his arms spread out on a cross, hung between two thieves. No one in their wildest dreams could have guessed that this cross, this place of torture and execution, was actually the hope of the world. That this crucified carpenter, broken like a twig in a storm and left abandoned to die, was actually God's son. I mean, what a way to save the world. The plans of God are a mystery, a secret kept for generations. That's what Paul's saying here. The gospel of Jesus Christ is beyond human knowing. We would never have guessed God's plan for saving the world if God had not revealed it to us. And that is the whole point that Paul is making here. Charles Coulson, who was part of the Watergate scandal, and he had to go to prison actually to find Christ. Coulson said, the gospel will not be demystified. God will not be mocked by the pretensions of those who believe they may fully and certainly know his mind. The gospel is a mystery because God wanted to undermine human wisdom. A philosopher with a truckload of PhDs is no closer to discovering the wisdom of God than you or me. A rich man can no sooner understand God's plans than a beggar. 
And that's precisely the way God wanted it. God wanted his plan to be a mystery to the world so that the only way that people could ever come to know him was through an act of divine revelation. The gospel is a mystery revealed to us. That's Paul's point here. Paul says in verse 3, the gospel is the mystery made known to me by revelation. It's the same idea in verse 5. This mystery was not made known to men in other generations as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. God's ways are far above our ways. We cannot predict Him. But here is the wonderful thing. God has revealed this mystery to every Christian in this room today. This gospel thought up in the secret councils of the Trinity before time began, hidden from past generations of scholars and and rabbis and Pharisees, that gospel has now been revealed to you and me through the Holy Spirit. Isn't that fantastic? However invisible you may feel in your church or in your school or in your office, God has revealed his plan for the world, his plan for the future of the universe to you. Great scientists and philosophers like Richard Dawkins and the late Stephen Hawking are left scratching their heads, but God has shown us the full beauty of his son when Jesus Christ is still a mystery to so many others. We have discovered in Christ the greatest treasure in all the world, not through our own searching, but through divine revelation. So how can we treat this gospel lightly? How can we be apathetic about it? Of all the people in the world, God chose to reveal his salvation to me. And that fact has enough fuel to set our hearts on fire. Praise the God who chose us out of all the peoples of the world. We are the most privileged of people on the planet. I don't know how many of you have watched the Spider-Man movies. If you haven't, I'm sure your teenagers have. In the first Spider-Man movie, Spider-Man's stepdad talks to him just before he dies. And his stepdad says to the young Peter Parker, who can barely control the new powers that he has been given, he says, with great privilege comes great responsibility. And the fact that this glorious gospel has been revealed to us should inspire us to live gospel-centered lives filled with Christ-centered prayers and spirit-inspired devotion as we give ourselves wholeheartedly to Christ and his church. With great privilege comes great responsibility. But let's also remember that while God has revealed the mystery of salvation to us, the way he guides us in our day-to-day lives, the circumstances that he allows us to go through will also often appear a mystery because that's exactly how God works. I mean, God appointed the apostle Paul to bring the gospel to the Gentiles, but Paul spends half his time in a prison cell. How does that work? 
And Paul is saying in this passage that throughout the whole Old Testament, periods of thousands of years, even God's own people, his chosen and precious ones, did not know what God was up to. Verse 5, it was not made known to people in other generations. And the faithful Israelites in the Old Testament, they had to endure exiles and military defeats and a divided kingdom in the meantime. And even the prophets in the Old Testament who suffered greatly, they only saw the coming of the Messiah from a distance, like a a mysterious shadow stretching across the horizon. That is how God works. He works in the silence and in the mystery. And if Christ was born in obscurity, and if he was rejected and ignored by most of his Jewish contemporaries, if he was crucified on a cross, then it should come as no surprise when we are left bewildered by some of the circumstances that God allows us to go through. Losing a loved one, losing a job, having a child with special needs, or or one who struggles with their sexual identity. So many of us carry mysteries in our hearts where we would question why God allows this to happen, or why He chooses to do things this way. But the God who saved the world through the son of a carpenter hanging on a tree and kept this plan obscure for centuries is not a God who is easily worked out, but he is a God who can be profoundly trusted in the mystery. How God is working out the big picture of the gospel is shrouded in mystery, but he is working it out gloriously. And God will work the gospel out in your life, often through the most trying circumstances, shrouded in mystery. But he who began a good work in you will certainly bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. As Amy Carmichael said, God never wastes his servants' talents, he never wastes his servants' time, and he never wastes his servants' tears. The mysteries in your life will be used redemptively in some way, just as God has used Calvary, an ugly, ugly, ugly sight, to save the world, develop the church, and restore the entire cosmos. So Paul says we should be captivated by this gospel, captivated firstly because it is God's mystery revealed to us. Secondly, we should be captivated by this gospel because it's God's message entrusted to us. That's verses seven to nine of the passage. This gospel is God's message entrusted to us. So Paul has received this revelation of God's plan to save humanity But it's not enough for him just to receive the revelation for himself, to sit idly by while lost men and women all around him are perishing without hope and without God in the world. That would be a crime. And so in verse 7, Paul says, I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace. So people to whom God has revealed the gospel are also entrusted with the gospel. 
Now, no doubt Paul had a unique calling as a first century apostle, but we have all been entrusted with this same message. We can no more keep silent about Jesus than a doctor can keep silent if he discovered the cure for cancer. Paul received this gospel and then he became a servant of the gospel. Gospel recipients must become gospel ambassadors. A ship is perfectly safe when it's tied to the harbor. But that's not what ships were made for. They were made to sail in the open sea. A falcon is perfectly safe when it's tied to the arm of its master, but that's not what a falcon was made for. It was made with wings to fly. And the gospel is perfectly safe within the four walls of our churches, but that is not what the gospel was made for. God gave the gospel wings, and you are those wings. Or as Isaiah puts it, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the gospel of peace. Did you ever realize that you have beautiful feet? That's even before you paint your toes. Wherever your feet take you, you carry this gospel with you. God wants us to carry this gospel to the very ends of the earth. And that doesn't just mean going off to another country, though we hope and pray that God is calling someone here this week to go to another country where Christ's name is not known. We don't all have to do that. It doesn't even mean praying for a missionary, though it's a great thing to do. The ends of the earth begin with your home, your classroom, your office, your factory floor, your leisure center. As Paul said in Romans 10, how can people believe if they haven't heard? And how can they hear if there's no one to preach to them? And how can they preach if no one has been sent? Brothers and sisters, we have all been sent. You don't have to wait for some lightning bolt from heaven to discover if you're meant to share the gospel. You have already been called. We are gospel couriers. And look at how Paul views this gospel that we are couriers of. Verse 8, he says, This grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. What a beautiful phrase. That's the gospel. The unsearchable riches of Christ. The gospel is not just a sound bite. Ye must be born again. It's not just John 3.16 worn in a t-shirt. The gospel is the unsearchable riches of Christ. We carry within us now the answer to the deepest needs of the human soul. And if you share Christ with someone, you are passing on to them a well of endless depth. And who knows what God will do through them, the person you're witnessing to. You may know the famous story of of D.L. Moody's conversion. Moody's father was an alcoholic, and Moody ran away from home when he was aged just 16, and he became the apprentice to a shoe salesman. He was very inarticulate, and no one could have predicted what was to come. But his Sunday school teacher, a man named Edward Kimball, kept talking to this uneducated, rebellious little lad about the love of God. And Moody came to faith in inner city Chicago and he certainly made up for lost time. Over the next 50 years, Moody began the YMCA, which was very evangelical to start with. He became senior pastor of a church that they eventually named after him, the Moody Memorial Church in downtown Chicago. 
He founded Moody Bible Institute, which takes up eight blocks of city center Chicago and sends missionaries all over the world. My wife and I studied there for a couple of semesters. Moody led famous missions to inner city Glasgow and London where revival broke out and thousands came to Jesus Christ. But it all goes back to Edward Kimball, a guy most of us had never heard of. That simple Sunday school teacher had no idea what he was doing as he passed on the unsearchable riches of Christ to D.L. Moody and God did the rest. Don't underestimate not just what God could do through you, but but what God could do through the people whom you introduce to Jesus. But you've got to be intentional about it. This has got to be part of a lifestyle. We have this kind of unsigned covenant in our church back in Aberdeen. You have five fingers on your hand. Well, four fingers and a thumb, but who cares? Look at the five fingers on your hand and say, Who are the five unbelievers in my sphere of influence who I am praying for daily and looking for opportunities to share Christ with? It's dead simple. Who are those five? And in our church, we ask each other regularly, who are your five? Your five may be work colleagues in the office. They may be mums you meet at the school gate. They may be friends at the gym. They may be neighbors over the garden fence. They may be members of your own family, children, grandchildren, sisters, nephews. So intentionally make a note of your five. And then every day of life, call out their names before the Lord. Lord, I pray for Jim's soul. I pray that you would bring circumstances into Jim's life that would make him start seeking you. I pray for a God moment to speak to him about Jesus that's not kind of fudgy or awkward. It's amazing the things that start to happen when we pray simply, directly, and daily about opportunities to witness in our sphere of influence with the people God's already placed you in. You don't need to fly off anywhere, just exactly where you are. Those who have had the gospel revealed to them by divine revelation become servants of the gospel. Who are your five? I'd advise you, honestly, chat about this to a Christian friend or a family member who you've come to Keswick with and say, today, today, I mean, it's rainy, you're not going to be doing anything else, are you? Go Go into a little quiet place and say, let's write them down. I'll put it in a notebook now. Here are my five. And then with your friend, start praying together today even for a few minutes, for those five people. Remember that beautiful scene from the Old Testament where the high priest, who was wearing on his chest the names of the tribes of Israel, and he brought the tribes of Israel into the Holy of Holies to pray, to represent these names before God. That's what we're doing. George Whitfield, the great revival preacher, said, God forbid that I should travel with anyone for a quarter of an hour and not talk to them about Jesus Christ. We need to get into the habit of gossiping about Jesus everywhere we go. The gospel is not just a mystery revealed to us, it is this message entrusted to us. It is the unsearchable riches of Christ. So let's gossip about Jesus everywhere we go. Let's name five people before God every day who we are praying for and look for an opportunity to share the gospel with. But maybe do a little covenant. If you are used to meeting people at Keswick specifically, come back next year 
and ask your friend, how are you getting on with your five? Maybe you're thinking to yourself right now, oh no, he's not going on about evangelism, the very worst thing to go on about. And I, I have a problem with this myself. And you ask yourself, what's holding me back from sharing the gospel? What holds people back who truly love Jesus? I truly love Jesus, but I get all tongue-tied. What holds us back from speaking about him to other people? And I think Paul in this verse actually hints at two reasons why we struggle with this. The first is our own sense of inadequacy. Even the great apostle Paul felt his inadequacy. In verse eight he begins, although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people. And you may think, well, Paul is just showing false humility here. Paul's actually searingly honest in all of his writings. There is no doubt that Paul felt like an unworthy apostle. He remembered his pre-Christian days, holding the clothes of those who stoned Stephen to death. And although Paul was convinced of his total forgiveness in Christ, he says several times in the New Testament, I am the least of the apostles or I am the least of God's people. His psychology is fascinating. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 8, when he talks about the call of all the different apostles, he said, last of all, Christ appeared to me as to one abnormally born. He actually uses the word for abortion there. Paul became an apostle very late in the day, having persecuted the church beforehand. He, he felt his inadequacy. This isn't false humility. Paul felt his inadequacy because of his pre-Christian past. He also felt it regularly because of the threatening situations he found himself in. You remember when he arrived in Corinth, he said he came with much fear and trembling, and he wasn't exaggerating. He was scared. Paul had just been beaten to within an inch of his life in Lystra and Derby, and now he was coming into Corinth, which was the, the sin city of the ancient world. He was scared. And at the end of this letter to the Ephesians, he says, chapter 6, verse 19, we kind of skip through these verses, this is Paul talking, chapter 6, verse 19, he says, pray also for me, that whenever I speak, words may be given me, so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel. He's asking for prayer. He was asking him, please pray that I'll have the right words. When did Paul ever have the wrong words? He said, please pray that I might have courage. I mean, that's just extraordinary. Why did Paul need to pray for boldness? The man was a human dynamo. And yet even the great apostle felt his inadequacy as he was making Christ known in a hostile world. And so if you feel utterly inadequate as an evangelist this morning, perhaps because of things you might have done in the past, and the guilt of the past still hangs over you, or perhaps because of kickbacks you have faced, hostility you have faced when you've tried to share Christ with hostile people. It's just horrible. If you have felt that wounding, then you are exactly where Paul was. And you and I, along with Paul, we need to ask for Holy Spirit courage, for divine boldness not to hold back when an opportunity arises. In fact, there's a great encouragement here. If Paul needed to ask for the words, you and I can as well. Lord, give me the words. I, I get tongue-tied, but Lord, when I take that move to speak to my friend, you will give me the words to say. Isn't that beautiful? 
Let's ask for that, Lord. Give me the words for one of my five this week who I'm praying for and longing for. And there's just an opportunity over the water cooler on Wednesday afternoon in the office. That opportunity's there. My heart's pumping. Lord, give me the words. Give me the courage. Paul wasn't a superhero. Paul was infused with the same Holy Spirit power that is available to you and I if we ask for it, if we're intentional about it. But of course, it's not just feelings of inadequacy that hold us back from sharing the gospel. It's also the sense that our culture today is just so pagan now. It is so very lost. We can't even reach first base with people. More and more Brits have no biblical worldview at all. Like the young lad who was asked by a student evangelist what he thought of Jesus Christ, and he answered in all sincerity, Jesus Christ, yes. Which Premier League team does he play for? The sheer ignorance of our culture can make us hold back from sharing the gospel. But that is precisely the same situation that Paul found himself in. In fact, he says in verse 8 that he was called to bring the gospel to who? He was called to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. Despite all of his Jewish upbringing and learning, it's the Gentiles he was called to. To the very people who he said back in chapter 2 were totally ignorant of God's grace. These were the foreigners, the strangers, without hope and without God in the world. And look at what God did as the message was presented. And of course, when Paul was speaking to Gentile audiences, he assumed that they had little or no knowledge of the God of Israel. It's fascinating, actually, during a study as we go through Acts, Paul, how he speaks to Jews versus how he speaks to Gentiles. To the Greeks in Athens in Acts 17, Paul used the illustration of the unknown God. That's where he had to start, just to get people to start thinking about the God of Israel that they had no clue about. And he certainly didn't start quoting from the Old Testament because the pagan Athenians had no knowledge of what the Old Testament even was. Paul quoted instead from a pagan poet. I looked it up actually. The pagan poet was called Aretas. And Aretas was actually from Tarsus, most scholars believe. Same town as Paul. And this was a book that Paul knew these Athenians would have read. It was a work of astronomy. And this work of astronomy opens with an invocation to Zeus, the Greek god. That's how that work opens, but Paul had read it because he wanted to build a bridge. He wanted to build a bridge with his hearers, so he, he gives the quote, in him we live and move and have our being. Do you remember him saying that? That's from Aratus, this pagan poet. So Paul starts from a work of astronomy, and then he builds all the way to proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus. So he doesn't stop with the work of astronomy. He goes where they don't want him to go. He goes to resurrection. He goes to the death of Christ and, and all the things about sin and salvation that people didn't want to hear. So he doesn't avoid the absolute truth to gain an audience. He does both things. And, of course, we're told about the response. We're told some pagans laughed and some said, we want to hear more. And the Spirit went to work in their hearts. That's how it works. Some will laugh at you. Some will jeer and tell us that we are intellectual numbskulls. That's exactly what I was called a couple of weeks ago on Twitter, an intellectual numbskull. Lovely. But as you're doing that, a small number will say, we want to hear more. And that's when the Spirit is going to work in their hearts. So however inadequate we feel, 
And however ignorant our hearers are about biblical truth, we are ultimately depending on Holy Spirit power, not on human argument. Even the cleverness of Paul did not relate just to human argument. In fact, verse 7, he says, I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. It was God's power and human eloquence instead of human eloquence that he was relying on. Not by might, not by power, not by fancy events and strobe lighting and gimmicks that reduced the gospel to a soundbite, but by my spirit, says the Lord. If we are relying on the Spirit's power as we plainly make known the gospel, even to the most ignorant people in our generation who are hostile towards us, God can open anyone's eyes through anyone's witness, just as he opened your eyes to grasp the unsearchable riches of Christ. Like those Christians in the Colosseum and Paul in his prison cell, let's be captivated by this gospel. This gospel is God's mystery revealed to us. It's God's message entrusted to us. And thirdly, it's God's wisdom displayed through us. That's verses 10 to 13 of the passage. The gospel is God's wisdom displayed through us. Up to now, Paul has been describing God's plan to call people to himself from every nation to be the church. But now in verse 10, the panorama suddenly gets wider. What was God's ultimate goal in bringing the church together? What was the goal of his plan of salvation? Verse 10 says, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. There's heavenly realms again. According to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. So God's plan isn't just to save people for himself. It's also to demonstrate his wisdom to spiritual rulers and authorities. Angelic and demonic powers that we scarcely understand. The Bible says tantalizingly little actually about angels and demons. There are some obscure passages that about a third of the angel host rebelled with Lucifer, the angel of light, and they were cast out of heaven and they're now opposing the gospel and anything that will lead to God's glory. But it's, it's difficult to put the full picture together. We just get little glimpses of how angels feel about God's plan of salvation. You remember 1 Peter, when Peter talks about Old Testament prophets kind of predicting a future in Christ that they could barely understand themselves, and Peter adds that tantalizing little line, angels long to look into these things. So the gospel is a mystery to angels as well as to men. As Charles Wesley's beautiful line of that hymn says, in vain the firstborn seraph tries to sound the depths of love divine. Angels and demons are looking out on the whole story of salvation and the formation of the church. They are involved right now in a cosmic struggle taking place in heavenly realms. We can't see what's going on, but it impacts our lives and our lives impact them. That's why Ephesians 6 will say, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual wickedness in high places. 
And that passage is a reminder that we live our lives on earth constantly against the backdrop of angelic powers, both good and evil, who have been watching your life since this morning, since you got up. Slightly freaky, I know. But that is exactly why Paul talks so practically in chapters 5 and 6 of Ephesians about things like how husbands relate to their wives how parents relate to their children, how workers relate to their bosses, the day-to-day stuff of life that can appear so mundane is actually a vital part of an enormous cosmic conflict. God has brought the church together to be His boast to principalities and powers. The manifold wisdom of God is being made known to angels and demons through the way you treated your wife this morning, through the way you raise your children and grandchildren, through the attitude that you take into work every day or even domestic chores. God is saying to principalities and powers, hordes of them, myriads upon myriads of heavenly and demonic hosts, He is saying, look at the beauty of my plan of salvation. Look at what it produces in the lives of men and women who were previously hostile to God and to each other. Look, look at how those families in Christ function. Look at the servanthood in that home. He's emptying the bins and hanging out the clothes without even being asked. She's making sure her children are fed and clothed and loved and nurtured. He's reading a kid's version of Mark's gospel with his nine-year-old son as he tucks him into bed at night and talking to him about how to deal with a boy who's bullying him at school. She's making the packed lunches for everyone while texting a prayer triplet of ladies from the church. Look at that single man heading to work. He wants to work with integrity while others are cutting corners to try and get ahead. He's faithful and reliable and is willing to miss out on promotion because his identity is in Christ now and not in any worldly vision of success. He stays away from office gossip and he refuses to flirt with the women who like his attention. She prays every night for her work colleagues to find Jesus and when anyone has a real emotional need in the office, she is the first person they turn to because her integrity and her love shine out from the cynicism of everybody else. Look at that Christian man struggling with his same-sex desires. Look at how he finds Christ more precious than his desire for sexual gratification. Look at how he restrains himself when he's in the quiet place, how he disciplines himself against temptation of any kind. Look at how determined he is to remain celibate while other Christians in the church don't understand him and say very unfortunate things to him, and while unbelievers around him just mock him. Look at the courage of his discipleship. Only the gospel can produce a man of such steely righteousness. Look, you heavenly hosts. Look, you demonic realms who seek to kill and destroy and spread lies. Look at what I am producing in the lives of these blood-bought sons and daughters of God, a heavenly community on earth, awaiting the great day when the sons and daughters of God will be unveiled in front of the whole of creation. 
Oh, brothers and sisters, your life has such meaning and purpose now in every detail of every day. Some of you I know like keeping fit and you will have a step counter on your phones or on your wrists or somewhere. And the nice thing about a step counter is that it counts every step, even climbing the stairs to bed. In fact, if I haven't reached my target for the day, I'll climb the stairs about three or four times actually just to hit the next level, you know. I get to at least 500 or so by the end of the day. Every step counts, and that is doubly true as we live our lives as God's boast to principalities and powers. Every step matters. Every moment has cosmic implications. It is all played out against the backdrop of principalities and powers. You are God's boast. And that's why we need to be praying all the time for God's power to represent his gospel well today, not just in front of other people, but when no one else but the angelic hordes are looking. And so Paul says very quickly in verse 12, he says, in Christ and through faith in him, we can approach God with freedom and confidence. We can be confident as we approach the throne of grace as God's beloved children that we will have access to divine power as we take this fight to the heavenly realms. May the forces of hell be quaking at the kind of lives, the kind of faith, the kind of prayers, the kind of conversations, the kind of relationships, the kind of witness, the kind of churches represented in this Keswick Convention. And as Paul himself catches a glimpse from his prison cell of the importance of every moment in this cosmic battle, look at what he says, verse 13. He says, I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. So Paul knows he can't be out and about planting churches now. That's over. He's in a prison cell, but he's in a prison cell by God's sovereign purposes. And Paul knows that even how he suffers in a Roman dungeon has massive significance in the heavenly realms. His suffering is an inspiration to the church he is writing to because it shows how much the gospel is worth. And brothers and sisters, exactly the same is true for us. Don't lose heart even when you are suffering. Maybe some of you are suffering dreadfully right now. You could barely make it to the tent today. Keep going because suffering with dignity and faith wins battles in heavenly realms that we have no idea about. That's what the entire book of Job is about. Like Job, totally unaware as he has launched into deep suffering of what his faith in times of suffering means in the great eternal battle between God and Satan. And Paul here, he was probably in the same prison cell when he wrote to the Philippians Do you remember he told the Philippians, Philippians chapter one, he told them that his suffering, his fact that he was in chains, that inspired the believers who came to visit him. They became more bold because of Paul's chains. The gospel was shining as much from Paul's prison cell as it was from his daily preaching around the streets of Athens and Ephesus and so on. And the gospel was shining not despite Paul's suffering but because of it. And this gospel can shine in your life as well as you respond to your suffering, whatever that might look like, with faith and obedience. God's suffering son is his primary boast to angels and demons. 
God's suffering apostle was the glory of the church he was writing to. And God's suffering people today in this very tent are his absolute treasure. And after we have endured, we will receive the crown of glory. Brothers and sisters, let's be captivated by this gospel as those first Christians were who spilled their blood onto the sands of the Roman arena, as the apostle Paul was in his Roman prison cell. The American pastor and author Francis Chan said this, very challenging, he said, our greatest fear should not be of failure, but of succeeding at things that don't really matter. Brothers and sisters, the gospel matters. It matters more than life itself. It is God's mystery revealed to us. It is God's message entrusted to us. And it's God's wisdom displayed through us to principalities and powers every moment we live. So be God's boast today. Amen. Thank you, sister. Let's just take a moment of quiet, and I'm going to pray in just a moment, but in this moment of quiet, just think, what has God been saying to me today? Maybe been troubling me about that evangelism thing again. What's God been saying to you, and what are you going to do about it by the Spirit's power? Then I'll pray. Heavenly Father, as the rain falls on this tent, so may the glory of God fall on this room so that we might leave this place with fresh joy in the gospel that the Lord should have chosen us from all the people of the earth, that we might leave this room with fresh courage infused by Holy Spirit power, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Help us to share this gospel message with the people that you've already planted into our lives, those God moments, those God relationships. Give us courage and the words to say to make Christ known to them. And Father, help us to leave this place as your boast, even what we're thinking about as we leave here. Remove carnality from our thinking and bring godliness, the fruit of the Spirit, into our thoughts because angels and demons are looking on. Help every wife as she speaks to her husband and every husband as he speaks to his wife. Help us as we raise our children and grandchildren. Help us as we go to work when we get back home. Help us to be your boast to principalities and power, powers by the power of your Holy Spirit so that we might know Christ and make him fully known. Thank you, Lord, that every step counts. Lead our steps by your Spirit and be thou our vision. We pray this for your glory. Amen.